0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg. Authoritarian populism, The Wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Last week, you'll remember, I was in southern India talking to Sir Martin Sorrell about the effect of Silicon Valley's winner-take-all tech platforms on democracy. Today, I'm in New York City, Talking about the same subject. My guest is Rana Furuha, the Financial Times columnist, CNN global economic analyst, and best selling author. Furuha, who is coming out with a book about the tech platforms later this year entitled Don't Be Evil, is also one of Silicon Valley's most articulate critics. And so she's particularly well equipped to make the connection between the rise of big tech and today's crisis of democracy. Rana Faruha, Financial Times columnist and author of an important new book coming up later this year called Don't Be Evil. Rana, you've become a historian of the platforms. Your book, (laughs) Don't Be Evil, will be about the history of the platforms. What have you discovered?
1: Well, a few things. Silicon Valley, you know, as many people have written, was a very idealistic place for a long time. And the internet itself used to be more of a decentralized platform. Now, as the valley grew and became in and of itself one of the largest economies in the world, there's been a lot of changes culturally, economically. You moved really into a system where there were a lot of hippies to one where it's being mostly run by libertarians. And This is something that always gives me pause. You know, there's kind of a mythology in the U.S., and it's one that's pushed in Washington. Oh, the Silicon Valley types, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, Eric Schmidt, they're all liberals. You know, they're pushing a liberal agenda. I don't think they're pushing a liberal agenda at all. I think they're pushing a libertarian agenda. You know, if you look at the leaders in the Valley, they give money to both political parties. They will lobby whoever is in their best interest. They took a long, long time, and I would argue haven't really fully had a mea culpa for their role in the 2016 election meddling scandal in the U.S. And this, to me, represents kind of where it makes sense that we would be after 40 years of deregulation, governments doing nothing but cutting taxes, the private sector being left to make its own rules. A company like Facebook is kind of the apex of that, right? It's what you would imagine would be born of that kind of society. But I think that the pendulum is turning. I think you see that in our presidential debate around 2020 already.
0: Isn't that a contradiction, though? You you say that Silicon Valley is lacking morality. You've entitled you in your book, don't be evil, which, of course, I assume is a kind of an ironic take on that early Google mantra. But wouldn't it be fair to say that many of the engineers, at least at Google and some other people in Silicon Valley, they did want technology to make the world a better place and they believed it would.
1: I think that that's absolutely true. But I would draw a sharp line between the sort of rank and file engineers in some of these companies who, by the way, are beginning to revolt against their own companies. You know, we've seen huge turnover at Facebook. We've seen Google stepping up on everything from not wanting to do a censored search engine in China to sexism within the company to uh, the use of Google technologies by the U.S. military. You're seeing real activism amongst the rank and file. That's great. But that's been a relatively short-term phenomenon. And at the top, The top leadership is still in Washington lobbying for the same old don't regulate us. We need to be the national champions against China, even as they're doing business in the very places that their workers are concerned about. And I see that as a real amorality. I think that's very problematic.
0: So you believe that Silicon Valley has essentially corrupted capitalism.
1: Well, I think capitalism was already uh, doing a pretty good job of being corrupted. As I say, my last book was about Wall Street. But I see a lot of parallels. Honestly, I look at the Valley and at the business model of platform firms very much like I look at the business model of the largest banks, that these companies both create a marketplace and play in the marketplace. They're incredibly opaque. They have incredible information advantages over other players. That skews the economy. I mean, I can't tell you, when I began reporting on these issues, I joined the FT about two years ago, and my mandate was to cover the biggest economic and business stories in global markets. And so I began to follow the money, and I thought, wow, okay, I discovered 80% of corporate value was living pretty much in 10% of IP-rich companies, many of them in the Valley. And I thought, well, let me look into these. At the same time, two things happened. A number of companies in different spaces, small companies, big companies, some small biotech startups, some data analysis firms that were launching in Boston, some mid-sized chip companies kept coming to me and saying, we're being squashed by these large players. They have incredible legal might. They have incredible lobbying might. They've captured Washington. And that was very similar to what I heard in the 2008 financial crisis. Right around that time, I also had a personal experience. I came home one day, opened up a credit card bill, looked at it and thought, my God, I've been hacked. What's going on? all these tiny charges and in, you know, $1.99 increments. And as I began digging into them, I saw, ah, they're all from the Apple store, you know? And I thought, what's going on? And then I realized, who else has my password but my 10-year-old son? Hmm. (laughs) And it turns out he had gotten addicted to one of the many apps and games that are built on addictive casino-oriented technologies, built to draw these kids in, you know, which we now know Facebook calls children whales and tries to lure them into these games, get them to spend money. I began digging into all of it, and I saw, wow, there's a business model that's designed not really to provide the best, fastest, most efficient service, but to keep our eyeballs glued to what is often mindless drack for as long as possible so that we can be tracked and monetized. And that's obviously what Harvard academic Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism, and I would agree with her.
0: So the platforms have had a bad impact on capitalism, even if they haven't ruined it because it was perhaps originally ruined <laughs> by the banks. But what about on democracy, Rana? Is there a relationship between the impact of Silicon Valley and particularly the large players in Silicon Valley on capitalism, and on democracy?
1: I think there is, and I think that the link there is the sense that most Americans have, and Pew studies show that the majority of Americans believe that the economy is rigged. They believe that the economy is controlled by large moneyed interests, a handful of companies, a handful of Titans. And
0: that's what you're saying as well.
1: It's what I'm saying as well. So
0: they're not wrong, these people in their underpants in the middle of the country.
1: No. And you know what? I grew up in rural Indiana. I wore underpants. What you just said actually reflects something that is part of this polarization. And, Mm. you know, I mean, I grew up in a red state. Trump voters were my friends in high school. I have for the last 20 years lived and worked amongst the global elite. But average people know a lot and they can smell inauthenticity. Mm. And when people like Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg get up and say we could have had no idea that this would happen. They may be in their underpants, but they know how yeah. to smell a lie.
0: So democracy, Rana, mm. what's the impact? Because the original idea of many people let's take Google as in particular as a company you know a lot about, perhaps the central company in your narrative of the platform's. The original idea was that Google would give out all this information, or at least create links to the information on the internet. Mm-hmm. Everyone would have access to it, and everyone would be wise, and it would be, be able to make more coherent, responsible choices when it comes to politics, when it comes to elections. Hasn't that happened?
1: Well, no, it, it patently hasn't happened. And we can see any number of ways in which platform technologies, not by anyone trying to be venal, but simply by the nature of the business model, have been used to do everything from Push genocide in Myanmar to tip the scales in elections in the US and Europe. So, no, I don't think that they've helped liberal democracy. I want to be careful. I don't think that Larry and Sergey and Marissa Mayer were trying to sort of do anything nefarious when they were uh, originally developing these companies. But I think that there was a naivete and there was also a sense of doing God's work, a sense that, well, we know best that I keep finding. And this is amazing to me when I'm still, with a couple of exceptions, when I speak to people at the top of these companies, there's just a kind of a, a little bit of a patronizing, well, you just don't quite get it. If you just leave us to manage things, it'll be fine. Well, I heard that before. I heard it in the financial crisis. Really, I think that it's about people buying their own cell and not understanding that there are other stakeholders out there. When you are running a company that has really become a natural monopoly and a utility that people need, Well, you have to talk to other stakeholders. And it's interesting. I don't know if you remember Ken Oletta's book. Yeah, He got into a little bit of the psychology of the engineer. And the engineer wants to go from point A to point B to point C very directly, very linearly, and doesn't really see the point in looking at all the possible negative externalities and kind of talking to all the different stakeholders, which is exactly what we do in Washington and possibly to a lesser extent in New York. But that's what you have to do because these companies are now touching so many different aspects of society. And these leaders who, frankly, most of whom are young and have grown up since the 80s, they haven't really ever lived in a world where greed wasn't good, where civic society was more robust. I mean, they've been born and raised in the 80s onwards, and I think that they just aren't up to the task of thinking bigger about what society and the public sector and the private sector should be together.
0: Are you suggesting that the business model of the dominant platforms, not Apple, but certainly Google and Facebook, the free model where we get the search engines and the social networks for free. And we essentially pay with our data. Mm. And these are advertising, huge advertising companies, biggest advertising companies in history. Are you saying that that business model, by definition, undermines democracy?
1: I am because in two ways. First of all, if you look at the undermining of capitalism and growing inequality being part of what is undermining democracy in rich countries, I would say that the model of targeted advertising fuels that, because you are taking what is the new oil data and you are harvesting it. You are not telling people what it's worth. You're having an asymmetric transaction of which the company is taking the vast majority of the wealth. And you know, there are actually academics at Yale, at Chicago, other places looking now, even within the structure of the University of Chicago model of antitrust, to show, hey, these companies have been growing their average revenue per user exponentially over the last decades, but our service offerings haven't really improved that much. So there's a huge amount of value in there that's going directly to the companies. Maybe some of it should be going to consumers. And that's what states like California, I think, are trying to get out with some of the new regulatory proposals.
0: Well, before we get to fixes, to regulation, one kind or another, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the relationship between the rise of big tech platforms and the growth of populism, Mm. particularly authoritarian populism. Not only perhaps in the U.S. and the Brexit vote, Mm. in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in Italy. Is there a connection between the digital revolution and this resurgence of xenophobic nationalism and the cult of authoritarian leaders like Erdogan in Turkey or Putin Mm. in Russia?
1: I think there absolutely is. You know, you're reminding me this past January at the World Economic Forum in Davos, I went to a panel on digital economies, and there was an interesting interaction. There was a lot of fighting between the tech firms saying, we can do this better, we can self-regulate, and the government saying, no, you know, you have helped to fuel these silo bubbles that have created fake news and pushed people into more extreme political positions. And at some point, a gentleman from Turkey stood up and said, I'm very concerned about the rise of fake news, silo bubbles, right-wing, left-wing extremism, but I'm also worried about my own government. Turkey is run essentially by an autocrat at the moment. I'm worried that my own government won't make the right decisions in terms of how to regulate these platforms and how to regulate the digital economies. And one of the European MPs on the panel said, "Well, I really sympathize with that and I think that anyone who has lived in a country where there's a Ministry of Truth says" We don't want that. But on the other hand, should Mark Zuckerberg be the minister of truth? And I think that both points are really important. And what is needed is a massive multi-year national and international dialogue in which you do not have a handful of private companies setting de facto rules that everybody else has to work with that have already captured national governments with their moneyed politics. You need society as a whole to be able to have a debate about, should data be an asset? Should data be labor? How should this wealth pie be shared? Because guess what? We're moving very quickly towards a society in which there are going to be fewer jobs, more automation. And this can be a win-win with the right policies. But without the right policies, it's going to be a populist nightmare that will make 2016 and Brexit look like small potatoes.
0: One of the previous interviews we did for this show with John Borthwick, the CEO of BetaWorks. Borthwick argued that he didn't see a huge difference between Zuckerberg and Facebook and the way in which the Chinese government is trying to control information and data. What's your reading of the similarities between what the Chinese are up to in terms of really recreating a digital 1984 Mm. and what Silicon Valley is doing? Do you think they're similar in some ways?
1: It's a great question. I think they are similar in some ways, but I think China goes much, much further. I mean, think about it. There's absolutely no privacy debate in China. They simply are not even having the kind of debates that we're starting to have a little bit at the margins. You have no assumption of privacy as a citizen. You are constantly monitored. There are smart cities all over the country in which traffic lights, medical clinics, schools are wired up with sensors. And the idea, of course, is to create the largest pool of data in the world, which would fuel China's ambitions to lead in artificial intelligence. And there's an argument that's been put forward, um, most notably by Kai-Fu Lee, the Chinese venture capitalist that used to run Google in China, his new book, AI Superpower argues that essentially the future is a race between China on the one hand and Google mostly, but Google, Facebook, Amazon on the other hand. And it's going to be about who can control the largest pools of data, stuff them into the algorithms and come up with the best AI. Now, I actually see a little bit of a flaw in that argument. A lot of tech titans in the U.S., are now using fears about China moving ahead in AI to say, well, we can't be broken up. We can't be regulated. We have to play the role of the national champions against China. But if I think about how innovation has always happened in Silicon Valley, it comes from small companies, right? We all know that as companies get bigger, and particularly after they go public, there's a lot of research to show that the level of innovation and the pace of innovation actually trails off. So To me, nobody's going to do centralization better than China. I certainly don't want to live in a surveillance state. We should think about our strength as being decentralization. And I think that if there were small tweaks, and we can get into some of the regulatory proposals, but if there were small tweaks to the business models of some of these firms, it would open up opportunities for other players to come into the fray, to invent new things, to do what America has always done, which is to decentralize and be at the forefront of uh, innovation.
0: And what's your take on Mark Zuckerberg's remarks last week about shifting the model of Facebook from openness to privacy? Do you see some sort of irony there, given that the business model or the companies that he seems to now be trying to copy are Chinese?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I hate to be cynical, but I am a journalist. You know, I mean, (laughs) this is only the latest in a number of multi-thousand word thumbsuckers that Zuckerberg has put out. And I read it pretty carefully. I'm hopeful, like everyone, that he's going to have a change of heart. What I saw is an understanding that, yeah, actually people are a bit concerned about privacy. And what I saw more was a way to head off potential regulatory calls for the breakup of Facebook. He was talking really less about what he was going to do for the consumer and more about how he was going to integrate WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook together, which could potentially make it harder to break those firms up, which is something Elizabeth Warren would like to do. What I didn't see...
0: Correctly, by the way, what's your take on Warren?
1: I do think correctly. I think her plan is one of the better ones I've seen so far. I think in the same way we have in the banking industry, targeting just a handful, not everybody, but just a handful of firms that have true monopoly power and are really cutting off the lifeblood of innovation. I mean, I've talked, as I'm sure have you, to any number of VCs and entrepreneurs that say there are now just black holes of innovation around the business models of Google and Facebook. People won't invest in anything they think those companies are going to touch because it's a losing battle. So I do think that's a correct proposal. I didn't see Zuckerberg answering the big questions. Are you going to change the targeted advertising model? Are you going to stop tracking us? Are you going to stop buying data from third parties? Are you going to stop creating shadow profiles Mm. of people that aren't even on your platform? Didn't mention any of that. And until we get answers to those things, there's not much to say.
0: You mentioned Kai-Fu Lee, who made an extremely interesting presentation at at DLD this year. Sheryl Sandberg also Mm. spoke and was very poorly received. A lot of people felt that she simply didn't get it. You're a very keen observer of the platforms. You're writing a book or you've written a book about it. Is there something particularly wrong with Facebook?
1: Oh, what a good question. Um, The
0: people particularly in charge, are they simply out to lunch in a fundamental sense?
1: Well, Sandberg herself is an interesting character, and she's, until recently, had been a bit Teflon.
0: Well, she's had a very sad personal history over the last couple of years.
1: She has, and I'm very sorry for her loss. But just speaking about her business choices, I think she's not come in for as much scrutiny as she should have. I mean, if you think about it, not only did Sheryl Sandberg um, study at the feet of Larry Summers, who mm. is one of the guys that came up with some of the free market policies that have led to some of the problems we've had. Right there's year. your
0: banking to Silicon Valley thing. Again. Oh,
1: there's my banking to no, Silicon lots of other Valley other thing. And there's examples there, of that. We could certainly go and make a Venn diagram of all that. But the other thing that people miss, and Roger McNamee actually drew this out a little bit in his book, Zucked. Cheryl is the link between Google and Facebook. Cheryl was Mm. the person who figured out how to really monetize the targeted advertising model and really fine-tune AdWords and AdSense at Google. She then went to Facebook and further refined those ideas. So I have to say, when I saw her last year up on the stand in Senate testimony saying we just couldn't have imagined that this would happen, well, she was looking at filter bubbles way back when at Google. You know, and this is documented in Stephen Levy's book.
0: Very briefly, before we get to solutions, I'm interested in your take on leaning and women in Silicon Valley, obviously triggered by Mm -hmm. Cheryl. Is there a particular problem there? And how does that impact on democracy? And does it even come out in the products themselves? Are technology products themselves gendered?
1: Interesting. I don't see tech products as being gendered so much. I mean, I think actually, in recent years, although the gender equity is still not there, I know that a lot more female designers are being hired. And I think Apple products are actually, and women rank those tops, actually, as the brand that they love.
0: If there is a good guy, it is Apple, isn't it, in the sense that their business model seems to be a little bit more credible?
1: Well, I think that they've very wisely said, look, privacy is a business advantage for us, and we're going to go after that. Because they sell products, they can do Mm. that. They're not so much into targeted advertising. I do think that they play fast and loose Financially, in ways that I think are not great, but that's mm, perhaps that's another from, question for the podcast. What I would say about women in the valley: I didn't like Lean In because I thought it was so American in the sense that it was putting all the onus on the individual. Well, you just need to lean in more. Well, I can tell you as a working mother with two children and three jobs, you know, if I feel like if I lean in anymore, I'm going to fall over. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think we need to be talking about what can we do more as a society and. One of the things I'm hopeful about is millennials, I, I look around our office here, millennials of both genders are saying, I don't want to live in the office. I don't want to live in a ringed campus where all my needs are taken care of because nobody wants me to leave. <laughs> because even though they're paying me well, I'm still pretty good free labor if I get bused in and out and spend 18 hours here.
0: The Dave Edgar
1: Yeah, yeah, which, by the way, was underplayed. My own crazy conspiracy theory is that that would have gotten more pickup, was perhaps dampened on the Internet. But I do think that these companies laud a kind of a way of life that, frankly, might work for a handful of people, mostly men in their 20s and 30s, and doesn't work for many others.
0: So let's collectively lean in, Rana. What are we going to do about all this? You've been a leading advocate one of the most outspoken people on regulation and perhaps Mm -hmm. even breaking up some of the platforms.
1: Well, I've never believed that self-regulation worked. You know, it's funny. I had this conversation with Roger McNamee two years ago. He came into my office and we started talking about his ideas and this led to his writing of Zucked, his book. And I remember we talked about this whole thing and I said, it's going to have to be regulation. And he said, no, I don't think we should jump to that yet. We should give them a chance. Well, here we are. Self-regulation has not worked. Governments are going to have to step in. We're going to have to figure out what we want the internet to be, who we want it to serve, how we're going to divide up this very rich pie. And that's going to be a robust discussion. Who are we,
0: Rana, when you say we?
1: citizens, not consumers, citizens. Mm. And I think that that's a word that I'd like to start hearing a lot more of.
0: Is there such a thing as a U.S. citizen?
1: Yes, absolutely there is. You and I are citizens. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the leading new progressive voices, is making this point. Elizabeth Warren is making this point. I think that you're going to see the problem of oligopoly, of which Silicon Valley is at the apex, not the only player here. Wall Street, major companies are all in this problem. But oligopoly and the fact that we've become a consumer society is part of the problem. We need to go back to being a society of citizens who make choices about economic ecosystems that are in our interest as a whole.
0: So if Donald Trump was in our little pod here, fortunately he isn't, he would say, oh, just another socialist. Ironic that we're at the home of the Financial Times, the leading newspaper about global capitalism. But can one regulate and maintain capitalism?
1: Absolutely, you can. As a matter of fact, again, going back to Adam Smith, he would have said that the three things that you need for healthy capitalism are transparency in markets, equal access to data, and a shared moral framework. And I would say that we have none of those things going right now. And I would also say to Donald Trump, guess what? 70% of millennial voters, which are now the largest voting bloc, don't mind the word socialist.
0: Do they mind the word socialist at the FT?
1: No, oddly enough, some of our core readers are financiers and Marxists.
0: (laughs) Something very ironic about that. that It seems as if the most coherent and convincing critique of capitalism is often coming from people like yourself at the FT.
1: (laughs) Which, by the way, I wouldn't call myself a Marxist. I would would say I'm more a social Democrat, but they're the same flip sides of the same coin. And I think one of the reasons that the labor left reads the FT before the New York Times is that we know the game.
0: So what to do? Should Google and Facebook, should they actually be broken up? Are they by definition monopolists and, and we need to reinvigorate the antitrust?
1: Yes, I think we do. I think there's a rich debate in antitrust going on right now. There's some who believe that we can use the existing Chicago school principles to simply show that data has value. And then if you take that as a given, you can come up with mathematical models that will show that there actually has been monopoly power taken by these companies. That's one approach. There's another approach using the kind of new Brandeis School, which is about power. It's about saying, look, These companies are like railroads, you know, they can simply buy politicians. They can simply make their own rules. They have too much power and so you need to break them up for that purpose. Again, I kind of take a third angle on this, and it's maybe a little more similar to the way Elizabeth Warren looks at it, which is that I see them like big holding banks. I think it's unfair to both be the market and play in the market. And so certain tweaks have to be made to that rule, just as there have been in banking, in order to make the marketplace fair and more competitive.
0: Should we simply in the US at least copy what's happening in Europe. Is Vestager the pioneer of all this?
1: Vestiger's great in terms of speaking truth to power, but you know, I'd argue that some of the California privacy regulations and some of the data proposals that are going to be upcoming in California are even maybe tougher than GDPR. Talk a little
0: bit about those in California. And well, who's championing
1: them? Well, there's a businessman, some activists. Jim Steyer's been important in this debate. What I like about these is that by forcing more disclosure in a clear way about what consumers are actually signing over. Okay, you want to use this app? You want to log into Facebook? Here's what we're going to do with your data. That kind of transparency is very important because then people can at least make an informed market choice. It also starts a debate about the extent of surveillance, which, frankly, we didn't even have because we didn't know. And let me take this one beat further. I don't think the platform firms are the only ones that are going to be talking about this. If you look at the new proposals, about a data dividend, which uh, Governor Newsom has talked about. This would be paid out potentially by any company that was collecting personal data. Now, that's not just the platform companies. It could be an auto firm. It could be Starbucks. What does that
0: mean, a data dividend?
1: A data dividend, uh, the technical details of it are still be working out. But the idea is that all of our personal data has value and it's an asset. It should be marked on a balance sheet. You and I should be able to own some of that value. Some people, like Glenn Weil, the economist who wrote a wonderful book called Radical Markets, feel that it should be counted as labor. And so we should actually get paid, in a way, for our data. So you can look at it either way. But the point is that some of the wealth should be flowing not just towards the companies, but towards the people that are giving the raw materials, which are data. And there's a precedent for this. If you think about it, citizens in Alaska, citizens in Norway that live in commodities-rich countries, and those are extracted, they get payouts for those resources in the form of sovereign wealth funds or in the form of yearly checks. And so it would be very similar to that.
0: Are we seeing a wave of new startups focusing on this issue? Are we going to see the anti-Google emerge or the anti-Facebook?
1: I think you will. And I think you already would have if the markets weren't so dominated right now. I'll tell you an interesting story. I was at a dinner party with a three-time entrepreneur in New England. And we were talking about how hard it is to come up against the platform giants. And he told me he'd been trying to sell his most recent company, a data analysis firm, to Facebook. And he had put some of the code open source so that they could work with it. And they were looking at another firm and also had an internal project going on. And in the end, they decided to go with their own internal project. But he felt that they had taken some of his source code ideas And he went to complain about this and said, look, I can't fight you legally, but I think this is wrong and I want you to know it. And his contact there, according to him, said, well, look, John, you have to understand we're working with six times as much data per second as the largest banks, but we're making one one hundred thousandth the amount of profit on it. If we have to pay for everything, we don't have a business model. And I find that a very telling quote. I think that What this says is that these companies are getting a lot of inputs for free, and that's one of the reasons that they have 43% profit margins.
0: You've talked a lot about Facebook and Google. You've mentioned Apple, but you haven't talked about the biggest platform of them all, perhaps, Amazon, Mm -hmm. who have a different business model. Briefly talk about them. Are you as fearful of them? Do they need to be broken up also?
1: I think that they need to have the same rules that Warren is proposing that would hit Google and Facebook, which are if you're over a $25 billion company and you're both creating a market and playing in a market, you need to be regulated in such a way that you don't have unfair control. I mean, that's just kind of basic. You can't be a bank and trade aluminum and own all the aluminum in the world. I mean, there are actually rules around that. They all aren't always enforced, but there are rules around that. And I think that that's what we need there. I think that Amazon has incredible asymmetry in its transactions, incredible advantages. And I think the fact that it was allowed to go around and scoop up information in the course of its city search that it can now use with impunity is, it should have been illegal.
0: Well, let's end, Rana, on a Silicon Valley note. Let's Mm -hmm. try to be a little bit more positive and optimistic. Yeah. Let's say some of the stuff that you're suggesting happens and that the monopolies, the platforms are broken up. Let's say we have the rise, a new wave of innovative companies built around data. Let's say some of that data revenue flows back to people. Let's say that the information economy becomes less of an echo chamber, more open. How can that actually enrich democracy? Because democracy, as I think everyone would acknowledge, is in crisis at the moment, particularly Mm -hmm. in the West. Mm -hmm. This stuff happens if some of the reforms that you're championing, say, happen under a president warren or president biden Mm. how will democracy be improved
1: well i think that if you have a more robust economic ecosystem where you have more people actually able to pursue the american dream to move up the ladder to start businesses to not feel as though their prospects are hindered to not see their children less well off than they are of course that helps liberal democracy i mean the fault for liberal democracy, the the crisis in liberal democracy, basically came to a head at the financial crisis, after which it became incredibly clear that our government was favoring larger, richer players over smaller individuals, Wall Street over homeowners. That was part of a 40-year crisis in which you had an inequality growing, and that's part of oligopoly and concentration of power. And if you can get at those things, I think you can fix liberal democracy.
0: And at some point you talked about the citizen as opposed to the consumer. Mm. At some point, does the citizen also have a responsibility to be better informed, to be better educated, to be more focused on building a better society?
1: I think the citizen absolutely does have that responsibility. But being better educated depends on, I think, state and private support for better education. And one of the things that's part of the problem we're talking about, I hear a lot of calls from Silicon Valley tech titans, but also business people in general that, Oh, we need a 21st century workforce. We need the government to train and educate people better. At the same time, they're calling for tax cuts that make it harder for them to do that. Can't have it both ways, guys. And it is mostly, guys.
0: You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. And this interview is with Rana Faruha. Stick around, as Andrew will be back after a quick break while we hear from our sponsors.
2: Hi, my name is Steffi Cherny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels, and we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket.
0: Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview with Rana Faruha. So there is indeed an intimate connection between the rise of the big tech platforms and our crisis of democracy, at least according to Rana Faruha. But is she right? Is Silicon Valley really the cancer eating away at the heart of the American Republic? I think Faruha, who, by the way, wrote Makers and Takers, an acclaimed 2016 critique of American financial capitalism, is correct to describe Silicon Valley and Wall Street in similarly critical language. Both industries are dominated by libertarian ideologies, she says, which have profited liberally from 40 years of radical deregulation. The monopolists in both industries are stifling innovation. Both sectors are lacking any kind of moral compass, an ethical vacuum epitomized by Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, who worked on Wall Street before coming to Silicon Valley. And both have contributed to a blatantly rigged economy that has triggered the rise of populism. So to protect both democracy and capitalism in America, Faruhar convincingly suggests, requires both reforming Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Self-regulation doesn't work, she insists. And that's why, I suspect, she positively cites Elizabeth Warren several times in our conversation. You see, Warren is the one Democratic presidential candidate who is both in favor of aggressively regulating Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Warren has even announced that if she becomes president, she would favor breaking up Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Faruha's remarks about California leading the way on regulation are also really intriguing. Yes, she says, uh, European regulators like the EU Competition Commissioner Margaret Vestager have indeed pioneered a defense against the big tech platforms. But the real innovation on regulating privacy and introducing a data dividend, she says, is being pioneered in California by reformers like Governor Newsom and the billionaire leftist Jim Steyer. I'd like to explore some of these innovations in future shows, especially the idea of a data dividend, which has always represented a kind of holy grail for Facebook and Google critics. The key to enriching democracy in America, Faruhar insists, is by focusing on citizens rather than consumers. And it's here that she plays the generational card, suggesting that millennials are particularly sympathetic to this return to the original principles of American democracy. I hope she's right. Certainly, millennials have indeed been deeply affected by both the Great Recession of 2008 and contemporary surveillance capitalism. But I wonder if a generation reared on narcissistic products like Instagram and Twitter really are ready to make the kinds of personal compromises necessary to resurrect the communitarian ideals of citizenship. What is undeniable, however, is the importance of this debate. Furua wants what she calls a massive multi-year dialogue about regulating the tech platforms and protecting democracy. With the imminent destruction of millions of jobs by artificial intelligence, she predicts, both our economic and political future will be nightmarish unless we fix big tech now. Rana Faruha is of course right, and we've got to hope that via politicians like Elizabeth Warren or Gavin Newsom and writers like Faruha herself, that this dialogue is now beginning. You'll remember that Rana Faruha brought up something she called surveillance capitalism in our conversation today. This is a term that has been popularized by the Harvard sociologist Shoshana Zuboff, the author of the much acclaimed The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And so I'm thrilled that Zuboff will be my guest on next week's show to talk about her brilliant new book.